About 10 years ago, uh, we identified seven fundamental changes that have to happen in a person's life um, in between the time they become uh, Christian and the time that they leave this world. These changes, all of them uh, occur at the deepest level within the soul of a person. And they're not always visible at first, but over time, like an earthquake, these are deep seismic changes that alter the landscape. Everything in our surface lives will change. One of those seven shifts is called ask to listen. When we move from ask to listen, we go from asking God questions and for answers to prayer to listening to God for what he is saying. When we ask, we are talking about um, our needs, our subjects, but when we listen, we let God talk about anything he wants to talk about. So when you ask God, which is a good thing, the conversation usually begins with a need or a question, and it ends as soon as you have an answer. Then you disengage. But when you listen, God is speaking all of the time, and you learn how to hear his voice. So the conversation never really begins and it never ends. And the purpose is not always to find out what God wants you to do. The purpose is to become united with God in his work. In 1959, there was not one Jesus Christ there were three. They were living in Ypsilanti, Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, true story. They were patients in a psychiatric ward. They were patients of Milton Rokich, a behavioral psychologist who was trying to reason with all three. He met with them for more than two years, one-on-one, -on -one, trying to talk them out of this myth that each one of them was the son of God. Uh, he made a little progress. One of them, um, Leon, uh, started out by saying that he was married to the Virgin Mary. Uh, but after two years of deep, intensive counseling, he finally admitted that this was not true. The, the Virgin Mary, he said, was actually his sister-in-law. So uh, after a lot of work, maybe a little bit of progress, finally, Rokic decided that he needed to do something drastic. So he moved all three patients into the same room, put their beds side by side, made them eat together, uh, live together, uh, work together, and then every day they went into group therapy. The idea was that maybe by subjecting each patient to the claims of the other, they would confront the ultimate contradiction, which is more than one person sharing the same identity, and that, Jesus Christ. The project failed miserably. After another two years, while they were in a room, one of them said, I am the son of God who is on a mission to save the world. And when Rokich said, who told you this? He said, God told me. And immediately one of the other patients says, I never told you any such thing. <laughs> now at the center of the Christian religion 
is the claim that God speaks to mortals and that they can hear his voice. They can even understand him. And when they listen, they can bond with God and join him in his work. I just want to begin by reminding you what an outrageous claim that is. Not all of Christianity even is comfortable with that claim, but evangelicals have become very comfortable, almost too comfortable with it. God speaks to mortals. They can hear him and understand him, and when they listen to him, they can unite themselves with him and join him in his work. This happens in the Bible with such regularity that we have all come to just accept it, Christians. Not realizing that if any one of us today made a similar claim in our day, we would think they belonged in Ypsilanti. And God said to Noah, build an ark. If you want to get the hang of this, start building a spaceship in your backyard. And when your neighbors ask what it is you're doing, tell them the rapture is coming and you're getting ready to fly away and see if they don't think you belong in Ypsilanti. And God said to Abraham, leave your country, your father, and your pension and go to a land I have not yet determined. And God said to Moses, speak to the rock, talk at the rock in front of all the leaders. Are you crazy? God said to Joshua, march around the city seven times, and while the sentries are mocking on the gate, start blowing the horn. I'm about to bring down the walls. And God said to Gideon, go and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And God said to Jeremiah, go and buy that piece of property. And God said to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. The baby she's carrying is coming from the Holy Spirit. You realize that if you made any such claim like this today, we would think you were crazy. But Christians just accept this wholesale. These are not small things, people. Moses is getting ready to kill his son on an altar because he said he heard God. Moses is speaking to the sea, telling it to part because he said he heard God. Jeremiah has a yoke around his neck and he's walking through a village prophesying. Ezekiel is laying on his side 390 days, not moving. Then he suddenly stands up and he bears his arm against Jerusalem and he starts prophesying because he said he heard God. And yet you listen to this and go, well, of course, of course, it's in the Bible, it's true. How 
did these people know it was God? <laughs> We're never told this. Almost never. God said it. They knew it was his voice. And they went out and they did things they otherwise would not have done because they knew it was God. Sometimes what we think to ourselves is, well, it must have been an audible voice. But all of that assumes that to hear something with your ears is the most certain way of knowing it. What if it's not? What if there are ways of hearing God's voice that do not involve your ears? And what if those capacities every one of us has, but they have atrophied over the years and we no longer use them? They're there, they're just inactive. And part of moving from ask to listen is to awaken those faculties and to use the part of our being that God designed for hearing his voice, which is not our ears, it's our souls. But they're asleep. My point is not that these people either heard or didn't hear an audible voice from God. My point is that they heard something, people. They heard something. And they knew with certainty it was God's voice. We don't know if they made this decision in one night or over a year. But we know that they were sure it was God. And they acted and they did outrageous things that fit them for Ypsilanti. Only their stories are in the Bible. And the more I thought about this, I began to wonder, what if their stories are in the Bible, not because these people are extraordinary, but because they're not? What if all of these stories are in the Bible because that is the normal Christian life? And you would expect people to think that was unusual if everybody was deaf. But what if there is part of us that still can hear the voice of God and we need to develop it? And let me just put it like this. Do you think it's possible for you to hear God's voice as easily, as certainly, and as regularly as Jesus did? Do you think that's possible? Do you think you can ever get to the point where you can hear God speak as easily, regularly, and as certainly as Jesus did? Why or why not? Watch it. Because when you answer the question, you're moving theological furniture. You're saying things you did not intend to say. I'm asking you what is possible. All of this brings us to the day of Eli, to the day of Samuel. 
Let me retell the story real quickly and then tell you why this story is important for moving from ask to listen. In the days of Samuel, Eli was the judge. He was the priest. Now, according to the Bible, Eli was very old. According to the next chapter, he was really heavy. He was immobile. Um, I felt bad for Absalom when I saw him uh, up here playing Eli. I thought, yeah, he's not going to like this. Eli was old and he was heavy. Um, uh, he was so immobile that he couldn't get around much, but he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were also priests of the worst sort. We're told in the Bible that Eli's two sons used to take advantage of the offerings. When people would come in and put their offerings into the temple as a sacrifice, the sons would take from the sacrifice and they would sort of fatten themselves. This doesn't mean there weren't church services. It means there were. But the priests were not conducting their services for the sake of the people. They were doing it for themselves. They were using the religious structure in Israel to get attention for themselves for notoriety, status, and they were having sex with the women that came into the temple to serve. So it was the self-absorption and sexual immorality that marked religion in that day. Eli, the old man, didn't approve of any of these things. But he couldn't hold them accountable because the sons were the new face of religion. They were more popular than Eli was. He needed them in a sense. And so he didn't dare confront them. Didn't approve. But he didn't want to take them on. They were bigger than he was. One night, while Eli was asleep in the usual place, his own quarters, there was a boy named Samuel who was also asleep in front of the presence where God is. And all of a sudden, this boy got woke up with a voice that said, Samuel, he ran in and said, what do you want? He said, I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. He laid down and heard it again, Samuel. He ran out and said, what do you want? He said, I don't want anything. Go lay down. And he laid down. He heard the voice again. Sounds like a joke, doesn't it? And it said, Samuel. And he woke up and he ran out and Eli was laying in the usual place. And he said, what do you want? Eli all of a sudden realized, uh-oh, maybe he really hears somebody. So he said, the next time you hear the voice, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel went back, he laid down, and sure enough, the voice came a fourth time. Samuel, he woke up and he said, Speak, for your servant is listening. 
And let the record show that the first prophecy Samuel ever heard was not like stuff you hear today. Mm, 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 mm. The prophecy that he hears was not, Samuel, you are loved. Samuel, you're precious. Samuel, may the force be with you. (laughs) He didn't hear any of this. This is a boy, and this is what he heard. When Eli wakes up in the morning, go in and tell him that I've watched his two priest sons defile the temple long enough. I'm going to bring the house down on those guys. I'll kill them both on the same day. And that's when you'll know I am the Lord. Now, have a nice evening. (laughs) That doesn't strike you as a little odd. Because I mean, we have people today in our church who are begging for a voice from God. But it's always positive, always affirming. It's stuff from Elizabeth Gilbert and Marianne Williamson and Deepak Chopra and Neil Donald Walsh. It's all the stuff. But the stuff that he never says is, I've had it. I'm bringing down the house. Now have a good night. Eli, or Samuel gets up, he comes out the next day. Eli wakes up and says, well, did the Lord speak to you? (laughs) Oh, I bet that was hard. No, 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 no. Yeah, he did. What did he say? Well, he told me that the force should be with me, that I was special. And no, you're lying. What did he say? Well, he said he was going to bring the house down on your two sons, going to kill them in a day. Then you'd know he was the Lord. Hey, nobody find this strange? God has a priest. But he ain't talking to him. He's talking to a boy. This boy, he's not the clergy. He hadn't been to school. He doesn't have the credentials. He doesn't even know the Lord, but he knows someone who knows the Lord. It does not strike you as odd that God circumvents the priest he has to speak to a child and give Israel a message. Let me tell you where I'm going with this. I believe the church in America, like Eli, is old. It's heavy. It's tired. It's powerless, and it is nearly blind. I believe that the evangelical church in America has several priests that serve under it, but those priests are much younger and stronger. They are the face of the new evangelical church. 
And the church may not approve of all these antics, but we dare not take on these megastar personalities for the truth of the matter is we need them. They validate us. Shoot, they're more popular than we are. So we have our priests and we're running our services. And it could be that God is going to speak around us. All the while the church sleeps in its usual place, God is looking for somebody who will live in front of the presence. Is there someone, anyone, for whom this is not a hobby? This is your life. Is there anyone in this room that wants to hear the voice of God more than you want to eat? Wherever he finds them, it doesn't matter to him whether they're clergy or laity male or female, adult or a child, trained or untrained, ready or not. Oh, can God find someone who wants to reposition their entire lives in front of the presence where God is? I don't even know what that'd take, you. When you came in this morning, we handed you a card that looks like this. Would you reach for that? If you'll give me a moment, I want to explain this card because I think it begins to answer the question of what kind of life would we have to live if we were to sleep in front of the presence. On this card, we've identified four different practices or disciplines that listening people do. At 12 o'clock is posturing. All posturing means is we regularly put ourselves in a position to hear God's voice. That's it. We create time and space. So when he wants to speak, he don't have to look for us. At three o'clock is scripturing. All we mean by that is I become more familiar and conversant with the Bible until 
I not only read the Bible, I learn to read other things by it. I stand alongside the Bible and I read culture. At six o'clock is discerning. All we mean by that is I regularly look for God's activity in my life, both in the daily decisions and in the big decisions. I have a way built into my life to clarify whether this is God speaking or not. And at nine o'clock is obeying. All I mean by that is I put into practice the next thing I hear God saying. Not the whole thing, it's just the next thing. And often the next thing comes before I see the whole thing. I just know what he wants me to do next. Now here's what I've noticed. These practices occur in a cycle. When I put myself into position to hear God's voice, I start to hear things I never heard before. I mean, there are thoughts and impulses and imaginations and they're flying all over the room and I have no way of regulating these things. And so the first thing I need to do is pick up the scripture and read it because it regulates all of these other voices. Once I've read the scripture, I don't always know what I'm supposed to do. And so I find a small community of people and I bounce these things off of them. And I say, while I was reading, I, I think I heard God. There's people in our church that while they're reading scripture, they write notes to themselves, they schedule an appointment, they come in, sit in my office, and they read me their notes. It's what they do. This is what I, this is what I wrote while I was reading. Do I belong in Ypsilanti or is this really God? They're discerning. That's what they're doing. Once we are able to discern what it is God wants them to do, the last question is, what do you think comes next? Why don't you just go do it? Now, here's what I found. Most of us cannot posture because we love distractions. We seek them even while we curse them. We won't go anywhere without our phones. And I guarantee it, the moment we get a text, whoever's texting is far more interesting than the person in front of us. So we gotta check. And then when I check the text, I think to myself, I wonder how Michigan did last night. And I check on it. And then something comes up and I think, I never knew that. And 30 minutes later, this happened to you. We're back to something else. Finally, we get to the point where we say, look, let's just admit it. We are addicted to distractions. 
They feel good. And so we cannot be long on anything without looking for something else. If we can focus, then our problem with Scripture is, let's be honest, most of us don't find it that interesting. There are other things to read or watch that are way more interesting. I wouldn't say this if I, you know, didn't, wasn't in church. But the truth is, when I read the Bible, I yawn. I don't get it. If I read it, then the problem is with discernment. I can't stay for long in periods of uncertainty. And so my tendency as an American is to undersample, under-research, and then to lunge at a conclusion and defend it with my life. <laughs> because you know why? When I get into a room and meet with the board, they don't want to hear that I'm still thinking about it. What kind of leader calls a meeting like Jehoshaphat and sits the board down and says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All right, meeting's adjourned. <laughs> no, sir. They say, we pay you to think fast and to be decisive. If you can't think fast and you're not decisive, you're not a leader. If you can't stay in periods of uncertainty for a long time, you will always abort the process of knowing. You got to know too fast. So the facts never present themselves because you won't wait. And if you will wait and you do know, then the problem is with obedience. I know exactly what God wants me to do. I've got to preach that. I'll teach it. Let's affirm it. Anything, dear God, but do it. You see the problem? This is why hearing God is so hard for us. Because we're either good at posturing, but we don't turn to Scripture. And so we're always hearing voices, but we never know for sure. Or we're really good at scripture, but we never hear a voice. I'm thinking of scholars. I'm sorry about this, you guys. I'm thinking of scholars and I'm thinking of preachers who, like me, they taught me how to study the Bible like it was a frog. You dissect it. And then you look at the parts. And if you do it right, you will have a sermon. And you will. But you won't have a word. You won't have a word. And what the country needs, people, is not more sermons. They need a word from God. I don't care if you read the Bible in Coptic. Have you been in a room? Have you heard his voice? 
will transcend all of your knowledge. Or we're hearing it, but we can't do it. We're educated beyond our level of obedience. When I was uh, uh, just, a, just maybe three years ago uh, at Christmas, my wife got me uh, uh, an Amazon dot. That's Alexa. Oh, heavens. I had no idea that Alexa was listening when I wasn't talking to her. Kind of like God, you know? And I didn't know how I was going to use this thing. Because I'm used to looking everything up. I know, I'm old. Not even on Google, in hard copies. Like encyclopedias. And all of a sudden... Lord, he says, really, all you need to do is just ask it anything you want to know. And so I tried. I, I think the first question I asked, I'm sorry, Colt fans. I think the first question I asked was, how many Super Bowls Tom Brady won? And it told me. How many MVPs? And it told me. How many yards passing in the last season? And it told me. And I started thinking to myself, this is amazing. <laughs> So I'm like, Alexa, what are the winning lottery numbers for tomorrow? No, I'm kidding. I start thinking, I can ask this thing anything and it will give me the answer. Like God. And I started to think, this must be how some people come to God. God, what classes should I take? And he tells you, who should I marry? And he says, no, not her, her. Whoa, this is amazing. God, what should I do with my life? And we hear this booming voice. This would be amazing. But that's asking. That's not listening. Soon as you got the answer, you're done. What if God has a bigger agenda than just giving you an answer? How many of you this morning are willing to say, this might be hard, but I'm willing to give it a try. I'm willing to, over the next few months, reorient my life until I am living, working, eating in front of the presence. <laughs>